everyone. Welcome to episode 68 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, strategies, and streamers in modern and pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago. And with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, how are you, my friend? Good to see you. I'm doing okay. Yeah, you're hanging uh, in there? I'm hanging in there. I'm a little sad that Dave is not here, but I think we found the next best thing. I think definitely. I think that this person is the closest we're going to get to Dave. Not, not quite as good as Dave, but as, as, uh, <laughs> as close as I think we're going to get. Also with us, very special guest making his dive down return. It's Everett Mohan, a.k.a. Aspiring Spike on Twitch. That's me. Everett, hello. You can call me Stan. <laughs> it's good to have you back, Everett. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. Since our bonus episode, a lot of fun. That was well received, by the way. I hope that you got thousands of new subscribers. I, I had lots of people coming in saying that they heard, heard of me on the, on the uh, podcast. And I'm, I'm glad to be back. Yeah, we need to update our marketing rate sheet so people who need exposure <laughs> that come to us to be in our show. Maybe we can make some scratch off of that. On this week's episode, we break down the results and decks from last weekend's modern super qualifier on MTGO. Then we dive into the latest spoilers from Magic's new set, Ikoria Lair of the Behemoths, or Elob for short. Uh, that's that's really that's that's perfect, Stan. It's like so elegant, just rolls off the tongue. Elob, Elob. Finally, we'll wind down with some listener questions that we have for Evert. And we're not holding back any punches this time. <laughs> Good. I could feel it last time. I felt like those punches were, were being held back. Yeah, this time we got all the gotcha questions that last time Shane was just too afraid to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but first, we have some quick housekeeping. Very quick. Big thanks to Licked the Cat for the latest review on Apple Podcasts. That is not me. I've never licked my cat. <laughs> it's it's a bonding experience, Dan. He licks me, but it hurts. It's so it's so sandpapery. Yeah, their tongues are like sandpaper. And Everett, you have a dog, so it probably wasn't you. I do. Uh, it might have been Athena on the uh, on the Apple reviews. <laughs> As always, uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can check us out on patreon.com slash the dive down, give to the show directly, get some sweet perks in return. You can also support the show via manatraders.com, get 15% off your first three months of renting magic online cards with promo code, the dive down, all one word. Heck, give us a review on Apple podcasts. A rating and a review gets you a shout out on the show. We'll make jokes about your name, maybe. But with that out of the way, I'm just going to keep talking. I'm at the news desk this week. And Everett, this is something we do every week where we pick a high level comp Ariel event. Sometimes they're paper events, SCG, GP, Pro Tour level events. Lately, especially, we've been doing a lot of these premier MTGO events. That's all we got. That's all we got. If anyone was doing paper tournaments, we would probably avoid that in protest. I think that would be for the best, yeah. <laughs> you have this have really big tables. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're we're going to go through the top 8 
And then we'll talk about the top 32 metagame, go through some of our takeaways from the metagame here. And Everett, again, for you, for your reference, on on the dive down, we are not shy about disagreeing with one another. Of course, good. And, And I don't often get to kind of, you know, bounce these types of ideas and takeaways from players that are as skilled as you. So if you disagree with anything I or Shane says, like... Please don't hesitate to share your thoughts. And in general, I'm really curious to hear like how you draw takeaways from deck lists that are published after these types of events, or whether or not you even like take the time to make takeaways from them. Yeah, I I do go over uh, most tournaments, and I try to you know accumulate all the new information into my already stockpiled uh, ideas of the format. I try not to let one tournament warp my opinions on a format too much. I think that that can be yeah. something that a real easy trap to fall into. One weekend a deck does really, really well. And you might think that that is changing the format a ton, but you might not understand why a, a particular deck is doing well on one weekend. And I feel like this tournament might be an excellent example of that. Sure. So in first place was a burn deck from Mato Marinario. Marinayo. Pretty stock burn list. Not Mono Red Prowess. This is Boros Burn. It's back. Did it ever leave? One thing I love about, about this deck is you notice that they've split their fetch lands. Two Arid Mesa, one Bloodstained Mire, uh, one Wooded Foothills to where they just don't want to get got by Pithing Needle or Surgical Extraction. You can tell that they're just trying to get every tiny edge they absolutely can. I, I just I love to see it. I very I never ever do it myself, but I love to see it. I sold my scalding tarns, and now I can't do this anymore. I was—I actually thought about that when I when I sold them, um, and I was like, I just I can't I can't ever fool anybody playing that turn one scalding tarn. Didn't I get at least one of those scalding tarns from you, Shane? Probably. Nice. I still play it, man. Then when you when you scalding tarn and then cast a goblin guide, it's just like you don't <laughs> fool anybody. Second place, amulet titan, and this is a Karn the Great Creator version of the deck. Is this the common version now? Just the Karn package? It's my understanding that Titan players are pretty split on the on the Karn package. Uh, there's a lot of a disagreement on wh- it's, if it's better to play it or if it's better to not play it. I think it's better to play it, but I also think that Karn the Great Creator is really, really strong in big mana strategies. Yeah, you're you're a Karnman just like me. I've been I've been trying to shove Karn the Great Creator into any deck I'm playing recently, and you're you're building a ton of decks around that, right? Yeah, I I just love brewing in formats and Karn the Great Creator. I've never there's never been a card like it that just opens up so many possibilities. I I really really like it and it's excellent in Pioneer and Modern. I agree. Third place, another Amulet Titan list with Karn the Great Creator. Also with Karn, yeah. They're doing it right. The two lists look almost exactly the same. I'm trying to quickly scan for any differences. One's main decking a Pact of Negation, one is not. They have Explore in this version. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the second place deck has Crucible of Worlds in their sideboard as one of their Karn targets. I like that a lot with um, the Ponza deck, or the not Ponza deck, as a lot of people like to say, picking up. That seems like a great tutor target right now. Totally. Yeah, at, at first I was thinking, why are we running Crucible now? And then I remembered that Ponza is maybe the most popular it's ever been. But more on that in a second. Fourth place, Mono Green Tron. Featuring Kozilek, the Great Distortion. And Sundering, main deck Sundering Titan. Yeah. Main deck Thrag Tusks. 
This is a really interesting build. They don't have the Carnegie Creator package. They have like a main deck Ugin the Ineffable, replacing maybe one of the main deck Ugin the Spirit Dragons. Like you said, they have the different, you know, different Kozilek than you would typically see. Actually, you don't usually see any Kozileks. You usually see Ulamog. And then the main deck Centering Titan, I guess, just shoring up the, the amulet builds that are out there. Yeah, I think that's probably what the intention of the Sundering Titan is. Um, probably before we, I guess, dissect things too much, I, I would like to say that all the, seeing all these big mana decks and the Ponza decks, I really think that we're seeing symptoms of modern becoming a mid-range fest, and pe- a lot of people are just trying to go over the top of the mid-range decks. The obvious decks to do that are the big mana decks, the Titan decks, the Tron decks, and then the answer to that. I think we've seen are the Ponza decks that are rising up in popularity and the metagame is, is hammering out because of the, the mid range battle that started to happen. Big mana decks, Ponza decks. Yeah. makes sense. Fifth place. We've got Bant snow control. You know, this is the type of deck that I would love to play, but because it's so expensive on MTGO, it's outside of my mana traders limit, which is crazy. I think it's like 1200 tickets or something like that. <laughs> oh or it, it was at one point. Um, it's it's wild. It's wild. I was hoping that when Modern Horizons returned to MTGO, it would help lower the cost even of cards like Ice Fang Coatl, mm-hmm. which has no business being twenty tickets, but it had like it did not have that effect at all. I, I can't tell if people still aren't drafting it or if they're just hoarding all their cards. Yeah, that's that's just really surprising. Like it, it probably is significantly impacting the playability of it online because unless you're what dropping at the highest tier of rental services, then you really can't rent this deck. So you either have to buy in or buy some of the pieces and rent the rest. And honestly, I think the deck is good, but I don't think it is the best deck in the format. Um, it might not even be like in my top three best decks if I had to choose. It looks to me like the best control deck. I, I would say that it's the best control deck. Um, and I, th- I think that this deck is, you know, tier one. Um, I think it's like it, among the, the best decks. Wouldn't it be in my top three? But it's been a long time since modern, since a control deck has been among the best decks in modern. And I think that people are excited about that. And that's part of the reason why this is so expensive. I feel like this is your style of deck, though, Everett. Is it not? Or is it not exactly the kind of control you like playing? It's not the kind of control deck I tend to gravitate towards. Just because this is the kind of deck I, I do like to play control decks doesn't mean I think it's one of the best decks in the format. Um, and I've played control decks for years and years in modern. And I think that makes me an expert at telling you. They haven't been good in modern for a long time. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's not the exact style of control deck I usually like to play. It plays a lot more at sorcery speed than I like to with Astrolabe and Uro and more Planeswalkers than I usually like to play. Not that this wouldn't be something I'd be pretty comfortable picking up. Just not my particular flavor. Sixth place, another burn deck. Yeah, it's it's interesting. They this one has three skull crack. I didn't actually see how many skull crack main the first one had. It only had two. So it's it's one of those things where I've heard and slightly agreed with the concept. Like if you have to run skull crack main in your burn deck, it's probably not a great metagame for burn. Yeah. But clearly these players are doing just fine with it. It feels like a, a five layered rock, paper, scissors <laughs> modern does right now, where you have the burn decks, which are good against big mana. And the Ponza decks. The Ponza mm-hmm. decks, which are good against uh, the mid-range slash control decks and the big mana decks. You have Dredge, which is good against the Ponza decks, the mid-range decks, but but bad against big mana. And then you have um, you know the mid-range decks, which are good against <laughs> basically only burn and each other. But you know they're the most popular 
percentage of the field. So you have these other, that's why you're seeing the big mana decks even existing. So this is a total aside. We're, we're veering off the highway. I am totally surprised to hear you say that Dredge is good against Ponza because after playing the new Ponza deck, I felt like Clothis especially has elevated that matchup so much for red green that it, like, there are some games where I just feel like I am pre-boarded against them. I think that Clothis certainly has helped the matchup historically. I'm actually someone who's played a ton of Ponza in Modern, but before the newer versions. Um, and that was always the worst matchup. And, and a big part of the reason is that Dredge doesn't care about their lands being blown up because of Life from the Loam usually. And if they yeah. get Blood Mooned, a lot of times they can operate, you know, just with Conflagrate and their lands. Clothis is main deck graveyard hate, which is quite good. But I think that game one Dredge is usually able to beat Clothis, at least in my opinion and experience and then games two and three I, I i don't think scavenging ooze is always or even often enough to beat dredge by itself i don't think it's a slam dunk matchup for dredge but i would say that they're like maybe 55 percent. i'll take those odds seventh place of this tournament was teamer urza which i think most people call Euroza. i hate these names honestly <laughs> i'm so sick of them well, you take Uro and Urza and you put them together. So many new names in Magic are so difficult to pronounce. Well, I mean, uh, in the upcoming set, we have like what? Re- Riel, Cheville, Kudro, Kogla. They all feel like names that have been written down and never said out loud. <laughs> Just like mash some consonants and vowels together. We'll get there. So this Urosa deck, one thing that jumped out to me, and, and Urza isn't really like a focus of mine, but... I'm surprised it doesn't have Thopter Sword combo. Instead, it's got four Emery, and it's doing the Emery combo again. And I think just winning off of either Uro, maybe beating down with the Karnstruct, or maybe just like looping Aether Spellbomb a bunch. Yeah, there's there's basically two schools of thought with the Uro decks right now. You build them as Teamer or Bant, and you just play the best mid-range threats that have ever existed in you know Uro, Emery, and Urza. Or you can play Demir and you can play a, a Thopter Sword combo style shell. Um, and they both have their own strengths and weaknesses. I honestly couldn't tell you which I think is better, but I think that a skilled pilot would be able to find success with either shell. Speaking of skilled pilots in eighth place, it was Jund. <laughs> Looks like Jund. Now, the top 32 metagame. 17 different decks. And I will list the ones that appeared at least twice. And then all the decks that were a one of went into the other bucket. Most popular deck in the top 32 was not Ponza Ponza with five copies. Maybe the most popular I've ever seen a Ponza strategy in a modern tournament. Yeah, that's wild. I feel like, you know, Odin in the super secret Slack server, he's he's been a Ponza guy for the entire time he's been in the channel. And it's always been like, oh, he, here's the rogue with his Ponza strategy. And now, and now apparently he's tier one. Good on you, Odin. Hey, every rogue deck has its day eventually. I think that's the, that's the appeal of a tier two or a rogue deck is that sometimes the metal game will be just right for, for your strategy and you'll be able to succeed with it. There were three copies each of Jund, Infect, Burn, and Bant Snow. And Infect here is kind of interesting since we didn't see it in top eight at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking that like... Everett was saying earlier is like, in fact, can sort of attack the the slower big mana, I imagine, pretty well here. Everett, how do you feel Infect has, you know, survived the banning of Once Upon a Time? Because it was a deck that I thought was going to get hit hard, and it seems like not even an issue. I think that Infect is in a really weird spot 
where it is exceptionally good against the big mana decks that are quite popular, but it's also, I think, quite poor against the mid-range and control decks that exist. And I think the only reason it's really able to still have a, a, a spot in the metagame is the existence of Veil of Summer, in my opinion. Um, I mean, this list is only playing two Veil of Summer, so maybe I'm off about it. But just the existence of that card being able to fight the opposing mid-range and control decks, I think, is what's giving it life. And then with two copies each, we saw... Urosa, Mono Green Tron, Dredge, and Amulet Titan. Interesting that both Amulet Titan decks from the top 32 were in the top 8. I think that's because the very best Amulet Titan players will be able to succeed with Amulet Titan no matter what the format looks like. I think that mm. the very best pilots are some of the best modern players, period. Yeah. And I think that that deck has, the higher, has a higher learning curve than any other deck in the format. I'm liking Mono Green Tron. I mean, of course, it's not like a major comeback here. It didn't take over the top eight or anything like that. But I ran Mono Green Tron through our uh, Slack League, and I was loving how it was playing. Like, I had not played it for a long time. I wanted to play something fun for me during the league. And it, it still just has so many powerful plays and has so many easy ways to make Tron very quickly. Yeah, I think that... Mono Green Tron is the big mana deck to beat the big mana decks. Yes. But it's also the deck that loses harder to the decks that beat the big mana decks. Um, which is, it's so interesting that you have, you know, maybe four or five archetypes in the modern format. And then you have four or five flavors of each of those archetypes, you know, aggro, graveyard strategies, big mana, control, mid-range. And each of them has different percentage points against the other archetypes. It's very, very interesting. And I think modern is in a better place than it's been in in years it feels like right now i love to hear that especially because every week on twitter on twitter on twitter somebody <laughs> somebody hates on modern everybody loves modern so much to be honest i, I agree with you like i i'm loving modern right now you're just never gonna be able to please everyone and i don't think modern is perfect um i think modern has been far from perfect for a long time but i i have personally enjoyed it more than i have in a long time yeah i think you get different people's definitions of what they want out of a format right it's like can i play the deck i want to play and not feel like it's completely invalidated can i play a powerful strategy that has a 55 percent win rate and showcase my skill and beat and game the meta there's can i play with a deck that i've had for four years and modified slowly something like jund and I, you know, you're not like you said. It's different people are going to have different ways of enjoying the format and engaging with the format. And the more of those boxes you can tick, the happier everyone's going to be. So before we jump into the takeaways from this event, a couple one of decks from the top 32 that I thought were noteworthy: Boggles, hello, Ad Nauseum, which I really think is a deck also worth keeping an eye on, just because Thass is Oracle. What a killer new win con for that deck. And Golgari Titan. Why not? Yeah, the Golgari Titan deck is really interesting. It's kind of like the amulet deck for going amulet, which makes some sense because um, I feel like Dryad of the Elysian Grove does kind of lend itself towards being less all-in on the amulet. And I, I like the way this deck looks. I feel more comfortable picking this deck up as a newer player to mm -hmm. amulet than uh, than the the ones we see in the top eight. Yeah, it was getting pretty popular before the once banning, and then after that happened, like... For a minute, I just thought Golgari Titan was gone. Looks like it still has chops. So in terms of some some high-level takeaways here, uh, you know, not to beat 
a dead horse, but I want to talk about this gruel mid-range again, because we talk about his gruel mid-range. And to me, I'm surprised that more people don't talk about it in terms of its big mana axis too, because it does ramp quite quickly. And I feel like compared to something like Jund or even Black Red, it's doing a unique thing compared to, you know, all the other mid-range decks. I'm glad that we're calling it a mid-range deck and not Ponza anymore, because this has always been a mid-range deck that instead of interacting with counter spells or hand destruction spells, it's interacting with your opponent's mana. And it's very cool that we have this deck that's a mid-range deck that can beat up on big mana strategies, where other mid-range strategies in the format have always struggled against the big mana decks. I wonder if part of this deck's success is how well it's able to dodge Ashiok which is something that like so many people are bringing in against any deck that cares about its, that cares about its lands. And the fact that like it lasts at Ashiok, I wonder if that maybe even gives it like a few percentage points in, in some of the more popular matchups. Yeah, have you been on sort of the Ashiok train ever? Like it seems like it's just being run in any deck that can cast it. I think Ashiok is an excellent sideboard card. I have been playing it in my Jun sideboards and I've been playing it in the main deck of my Prison Pals deck. I almost never bring it in in fair matchups. I think that it is usually a three-mana card that will sometimes impact the board. It will often not. It will often just die to your opponent's creatures. I just don't bring it in most of the time. My, I will see my opponents bring it in against me, and I'm just glad that it's Ashiok instead of any other three-mana spell. So if you're playing against Jund, Ashiok, stay home. Especially especially against decks like Jund and you know blue-based control decks where... If Ashiok is going to be bad, they can either leave it in your hand with a discard spell pretty often, or they can just choose to not counter it and do something else with their mana. And Ashiok is not going to be impactful, I think, roughly half of the time. And that's just not where you want your three-mana spell to be in a fair matchup. You want your three-mana spell to be incredibly impactful to the board. Yeah. Hey, guys, do you remember Mono Red Prowess? (laughs) Never heard of it. Well, it was this really fast, aggressive burn deck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was really popular in modern for basically most of 2020 and totally absent from the top 32 here. I, I kind of wonder whether it's because unlike classic burn, which can win basically without relying on its creatures at all, this deck is just getting beat up by all the mid-range decks that are either running lightning bolt or fatal push or any other like spot removal. I doubt we've heard the last from Mono Red Prowess. I also think that Mono Red probably has a good uh, green-red matchup because it ignores Magus of the Moon and Pillage largely. But that being said, Clothis is very good against both Burn and uh, Prowess and and Dredge for that matter. So I, I think maybe also part of the reason we're seeing so much of the so much of the green-red deck, not to divert too much, is that Clothis it just solves kind of all of the deck's old problems that it hedges against Burn and hedges against Dredge. But I, I doubt we've seen the last of Prowess. I think that, that that deck is quite good. I think arguably still better than Burn. Oh, well. So you're not making, I know you're not going to make decisions based on this tournament ever, but what are the decks that you think you'd sleeve up for, for modern right now? Like what, are, what do you think are kind of the, the most powerful, best positioned, most fun decks for our listeners to play on Magic Online? Um, well, if you look at the last uh, Super Qualifier, the one right before this, I, I top 32'd the event with my Planeswalker prison deck, and I know that sounds like a pile, but I think the deck is is quite good. It's also doing the Arbor Elf Utopia Sprawl thing, but it uses Oath of Nyssa and Interplanar Beacon to fix its mana, 
And the goal is to just cast a War of the Spark Planeswalker on turn two, be it Teferi Time Raveler, Karn the Great Creator. Uh, I've played a Dovin, Hand of Control, and Ashiok in the main. And I think that that deck is quite good against the big mana decks, the mid-range strategies, the dredge decks. Um, and I, I think it's it's quite good. I think it's very fun. Stan, didn't, didn't Lawson uh, win our internal tournament with that deck? I'm not sure. I actually never looked at the deck lists, even. <laughs> it was open deck list. I know, but I don't believe in that. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, Zanman Lawson Zandy. Uh, he's stream- he's been streaming a lot recently. Uh, I think he I think he took uh, maybe your deck or a slightly modified version of like that that rampy planeswalker kind of pile, and uh, he took it down. I I beat him in the Swiss, but I didn't get. <laughs> he uh, he dodged me in the top eight, so uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a good deck for sure. Yeah, I, I think it's just very well positioned in the metagame. I think it's taking advantage of a lot, a lot of the same things the red green is taking, the red green deck is taking advantage of. But I also think that it's good against the red green deck with um, Oath of Nyssa and Ren and Six being able to kind of fade the land destruction interactive plan. I've I've liked the matchup so far. Um, so that's what I would play if I was playing another super qualifier. Although I, I played a super qualifier, I played this super qualifier, and I played mono green devotion mostly for fun. And I didn't have a a very good tournament. What about on the aggressive angle? Like if you don't want to play something a little bit slower or kind of a you know huge mid range type deck, like what do you think the best aggressive attack is right now? Is it burn or is it you know bring prowess back out? You know bring infect. Uh, I I think that you can make an argument for infect or burn. I think you could also make an argument for prowess and saying that even though it's not in the top thirty two. I think that Prowess has always been pretty good against Jund. It's always been good against the big mana decks. I have a feeling that it's it's pretty favored against the red-green deck. I could be wrong. And if you're wrong about that, then or if I'm wrong about that, then you probably shouldn't pick it up. But I have a feeling that it's good against the, the red-green deck. And I think the biggest weakness would be these Bant decks. That's what I would be hesitant to run up against with Uro. Mm-hmm. But besides that, I've, I've always liked Mono Red uh, against most of the rest of what I'm seeing in the metagame. You know, the tricky thing with the red-green deck is if Ponza can land a Clothis, mm-hmm. the mono-red player has so many non-land cards in their graveyard that the Ponza player is gaining two life every turn now. You know what, that maybe that's uh, maybe that's what I wasn't thinking of for that matchup, just Clothis not only being able to gain life, but also being able to make Bedlam Reveler worse by exiling cards from the graveyard. That mm-hmm. could just be too much of a disadvantage to come back from also like if the ponza player starts on utopia sprawl instead of arbor elf and the red player isn't able to bolt the elf i think that's always a huge advantage for the ponza player you'd probably have to play the matchup 30 times to really get a good feeling of who's favored if you can figure out who's favored in that matchup that's going to give you a lot of insight on what aggro deck you want to play in this format so you heard it here first everett's preferred sample size is 30 (laughs) i i honestly Yes, I mean, roughly like 25 to 30, but I, I don't believe so much in sample sizes and like testing one matchup over and over again. I know I just recommended to do it, but <laughs> I, I always have, you know, people asking, hey, do you want to test certain matchups? And I, I almost never do. I just play Magic Online Leagues. I play like five to 10 leagues, and that gives me, I think, a better idea of how the deck is functioning than testing one matchup over and over again. So your sample size is actually 50, okay? So <laughs> I, I I guess so. I guess so, but 50 random decks instead of like 30 of, of one matchup. <laughs> All right, so I'll take us out of this segment. We'll head into the dive down where we're going to go over our first batch of Ikoria picks to click. 
So stay with us. All right, we're back with a dive down. We're going to go over our Acoria spoilers, our picks to click from the first batch of spoilers we got from Watsy. They've been giving us quite a lot to work with here. So probably to save some from this week for next week's episode, but we certainly have a lot to talk about this week, don't we? Yeah, definitely. And and I in particular tried to pick all the cards that Dave would want to would want to talk about. Yeah, just 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 snipe them, man. Snipe them. Snooze you lose, buddy. So the first thing we're going to do before we get into our actual picks is talk about some of the criteria that we've developed on the dive down when evaluating new cards. And, and we'd love to hear Everett's, uh, you know, tools and shortcuts for new cards too. I, I try to keep a somewhat open mind because there have been so many cards in the past that I have overlooked and I try not to do that if I can. It's surprisingly easy to do that, right? Like it's pretty easy to overlook. Like, I mean, Oko people talked about but it wasn't like immediately like oh this card is broken i think oko was a a really unique case where when we first saw it we didn't know what a food token was and even even if even if like we knew food token was just a blank artifact i think most people maybe could have figured out it was really good <laughs> but i think more people were just trying to figure out what the heck a food token was yeah um but but yeah, cards I look for, obviously, you want to look at for things that are one to four converted mana cost. Usually when talking about modern and pioneer, it's very, very rare that a five mana spell is good enough for modern. Uh, there, Funny enough, I think there is a five mana spell here that could maybe make the cut in some modern decks. Is it green? Can you ramp to it? It is green. Yeah, you can you can ramp to it. <laughs> we'll get into it. Um, but you want to look for... Obviously, everything in Magic is contextual. And if you can have a mm-hmm. good idea for what you get for a, an amount of mana in Magic, then you can compare it to every other card in the format and see if this is something that you want. And if you look at the last three sets of Magic, they are increasing the power level. Oh, yeah. You are getting more for mana than you used to be able to get. So looking at these cards here, there are a lot of things that are going to impact Modern and Pioneer, more so than sets have been impacting the formats for years and years and years. Um, and I think this set is is no exception. Power level is is very high, even if I think some of the mechanics are not necessarily constructed playable. Sure. Yeah. So I think kind of our bare baseline is what like we want we want one mana spells if we can get them, like two mana creatures as a kind of our baseline, and what like three or four mana planeswalkers typically. And sometimes, especially if they're green, because that's where the ramp exists. At least in Pioneer, we can start looking at those like Nessa who shakes the world, of course. Who I was the best five mana planeswalker ever printed. Maybe, maybe the new Vivian is going to take that title. Oh man, Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, no love. Yeah, I, I I have tons of love for Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, and I think that Teferi is number two. But holy crap, Nissa, who shakes the world, is obscene. Obscene. Yeah, I think I think one thing you kind of hinted at, uh, Everett, is novel effects. Like, you know, we have to we have to look for things that do something that's never been done before or perhaps do it better than it's ever been done before. You know, whether that's getting something out of a graveyard, whether that's reducing the cost of something else, there's all sorts of, you know, one thing that Watsi does is give you new things to work with constantly. And that's what makes some of these things hard to assess. Like we just talked about Oko. We didn't know what a food token was. We didn't have something 
turning a food token, like an artifact into something else. We didn't have such a text box obliterator in the past. So that was just new. Likewise, redundant effects. So if we see a card that's got a different name, but it's a functional reprint of a card that's already legal in a format, another mystic elves or Llanowar elves, for instance, Elvish Mystic, that might be what it's called. There's a bunch of them, yeah. Why not play 12 of those? <laughs> of course, free spells. If you can cast a spell for free, that's probably one that's worth taking a closer <laughs> look at. Yeah, or, or cast a free spell out of your graveyard or something. That's one lesson I honestly hope Wizards never learns because I, I love <laughs> playing with free spells. And they always get banned, but while they're legal, I sure, I sure do love playing with them. <laughs> All right, so... We have so many mechanics to talk about. Let's just move on to those. And so they they posted a, a, a mechanics article on the second of the month. And so to not reread everything, I'll try to summarize some of these pretty quickly. And we can kind of talk about our initial thoughts and feelings related to them. So let's start with perhaps the most confusing, interesting, confusing, uh, rules heavy, uh, text box heavy mechanic, and that's mutate. And so basically, uh, mutate cards are, I think they're always creatures. And every creature card with mutate has two ways to cast the spell. You can just cast it normally. It has a casting cost upper right part of the card, if you're not familiar with how cards are laid out. And, or you can cast them for their mutate cost, which causes a creature on the battlefield to mutate. And that, that cost can be more, it can be less than the actual CMC of the regular old creature. And so to do that, you pay the mutate cost, you target one of your non-human creatures. So all you modern humans players out there, you're not gonna be mutating much. Um, then you put that card on top of or underneath the creature you're targeting. And so however you end up stacking them, the creature ends up having the name, the color, the stats, and the creature type, all that stuff of the card that you leave on top, but gets the abilities of the card, the creature on the bottom. And so a lot of cards in Ikoria have abilities that trigger when they're mutated, um, like makes a target creature and opponent controls get minus two, minus two until end of turn or, or something like that. A lot of the mutate creatures themselves have sort of like an ETB uh, when when they mutate something else, you're effectively mutating that creature based on how the rules work. So like if a creature says when this creature mutates, you gain four life, it sort of has like an ETB of gaining four life. So you can look at those things to see, you know, does this have a powerful enough ETB for me to warrant running? It's it's super hard to evaluate. I've I've almost been looking at them as charms or not charms but modal spells where you either get a creature or you get a spell like effect when the card resolves um and looking at you know the big mythics looking at a few of the other mutate cards as as far as talking about pioneer or modern none of them really seem like you want to spend the amount of mana for the creature or for the the spell like mm -hmm. effect so far yeah so far i think i would agree there may there may be one exception yeah. Yes, there, there may be one exception. There may be one. What's what's weird, again, mechanically, is once the creature is mutated, it's essentially like a single creature. Like if something kills your creature that has mutated, it's just, it's dead. And so are all the component pieces of that creature. But let's say someone kills the creature you're attempting to mutate while that mutate card is on the stack. The mutate creature resolves normally. So... 
if someone doesn't want, say, a, a mutate ability of the creature you're mutating to to trigger, or they're like, I don't want the stats of that creature to you know be the stats of the mutated card, something like that. It it that that resolves just fine. And there's some weird things about like keeping track of the number of times a card is mutated. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Oh man. <laughs> so that rule that if a creature that is the target of mutation is killed in response to the mutate in your hand. Mm-hmm. The fact that you're basically protected from getting two for one from when you cast a spell. Yeah, only when you cast it. So once it's on the battlefield, they can two for one you. That alone, I think, seems kind of powerful with the right cards. And I wonder if there may be some opportunity, depending on what we see in the set, to actually cheat in bigger creatures for lower CMC if you're able to, you know, like sacrifice your own creatures in response to some ability. I, I do agree with that. I will say when we're talking about Pioneer and Modern, it's very rare that threats that are contingent on you already having another threat in play are good in Modern or or Pioneer. Yeah, you don't want to open yourself up for two-for-ones. It's just not a good baseline to like work from fundamentally. Our next uh, new mechanic are these keyword counters. So some cards in Ikoria will like place keyword counters onto your creatures, like Menace, First Strike, Trample, Flying, Death Touch, Lifelink, all that good stuff. Um, card can basically say like you put a Lifelink counter on another creature or something like that, or it comes into the battlefield with two t- two keyword counters of your choice of the following type thing. So there's. Some interesting possibilities there. Uh, I think right now things seem pretty safe, but I think if that ability is tacked onto something that is on rate or has some inherent power, then there might be enough incidental value there to uh, be interesting. Yeah, I was wondering what it would take for a card with this ability or mechanic to really be interesting. And I was wondering whether like a 1CMC cantrip that leaves a counter behind, like whether that would be good enough. Or if we see maybe, you know, one or two mana spells that also leave counters behind. I could see that being good alongside like Dreadhorde Arcanist. That sounds like something I'd, I'd like to see. I don't know if we're going to get one of those, but it sounds cool. Yeah, I think it's it's really going to be, what is the value add to this? Like, did they push a couple spells just a little bit much to like really want these keyword counters to see some play? Like you said, Stan, like, is this a spell you would run, maybe run? Like something that, you know, like a cycling card, right? Which we're going to talk about in a minute because that's a returning mechanic. But some of the spells that we see get play like Hieroglyphic Illumination. Like um, what's the what's the white spell? I cast out. Yeah, cast out. That has cycling. So that lets you run a spell that might be a little under rate because when it's good, it's good. But when it's bad, you can cycle it. Yeah, I, I, I think that this mechanic particular leads itself to like an old word of wisdom uh, there are no good mechanics. There are only good cards. And that's not ex- entirely true. Uh, like Storm and Dredge are kind of, you know, usually just going to be exceptionally good mechanics. But some, <laughs> something like this that just is giving giving keywords, you know, these these kind of cards are usually only going to be good, you know, by themselves if they're pushed, if they have pushed stats, if they have low CMCs. I don't think that this is the kind of mechanic that's going to be good inherently just because you're getting, you know, a situational evergreen keyword. And since we talked about cycling, let's just move on to that one. So it's a returning mechanic. You've probably played with cycling uh, if you've played Magic even recently, because that was in what that was an Amonkhet, correct? I believe so. Yeah. So what 
cycling does is let you usually pay a lot less than the typical CMC for actually casting the card and lets you discard the card to your graveyard and then draw a card in its place. And so sometimes cycling can get you like an added benefit, right? It's beyond just drawing a new card. Like Void Beckoner is like the six black black 8-8 death touch creature. That's, you know, you're not going to see constructed play really, I, I doubt, but you can cycle it for two and a black in your limited deck. When you cycle it, it puts a death touch counter on a target creature you control. Um, so that's that's the kind of thing, you know, it, it, that's combining two mechanics, cycling and then those uh, ability counters we just talked about. And there hasn't really been a cycling deck in constructed too much, especially in modern or pioneer, like what we have, like living end uses cycling to fill the graveyard, right? I think that's the closest to a quote unquote cycling deck. And living end gets some good, some good upgrades, I think, with uh, with the set. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you can always we can always look for upgrade cards, um, for sure. And there's some cycling matters payoff cards in the set, but that's usually a, a limited build around than a kind of a constructed deck build around. And so it's good to see cycling come back. I think it's it's it, it's a value add for limited, probably maybe some standard cards to not let you have these uncastable cards rot in your hand. I think if you see a cycling card that costs one CMC and has cycling, so like Unearth comes to mind. Mm-hmm. That's one that might catch my attention. For sure. Or, or any, you know, when we talk about like CMC in general and how we use that as a heuristic when evaluating new cards, if you see a card that's on rate that also has just cycling tacked on, like that seems like it could be pushed for constructed play. I think we have one example of that in, in Boon of the Wishgiver, uh, which is six mana to draw four cards or one mana to, to cycle. Uh, the going rate for four cards is, is uh, six mana at instant speed and five mana at sorcery speed. But with Teferi uh, Time Reveler, this can be six mana for draw four, which is you know the going rate for four cards in Magic, and it also has cycling. Um, so that, that's what I'm I'm excited for in Pioneer is Boon of the Wishgiver. Sweet. So let's talk about this last mechanic. It's Companion, and I think there are ten Companion creatures, and what maybe like six or so are spoiled so far. I could be wrong. Uh, they're legendaries, and they have this companion ability, and those all revolve around deck-building restrictions. And so an example of that is, like, your starting deck contains only cards with CMC 3 or greater, uh, or land cards. And that's Karuga the Macro Sage, which is like a 3 Simic Simic hybrid mana 5-4 hippo thing. And what you can do with companion is you choose one for your games and it starts in your sideboard as one of your 15 sideboard cards not part of your main 60 and you have to reveal that card prior to starting the game but once during the game you can then cast that companion from the sideboard like a normal little card and then it's effectively just a normal creature on your battlefield from then on so this is just kind of an eighth card in your starting hand which can be really dangerous. Or a seventh card if you mulligan. Yeah, dangerous in the most exciting way. I think that restrictions like this breed like tons of creativity, and I am very excited for Companion. Yeah, what's what's interesting too is even if you don't want to run them as a companion, you can just play them as normal creatures. Like you don't have to have them as companions. Um, it's it's interesting also that you don't have to build your sideboard around the deck building restrictions. Uh, you can just kind of you can you can have your sideboard not follow the companion ability, but I, I believe that if you have sideboarded, um, you cannot reveal a companion card in a postboard game 
if your new sideboarded get deck does not meet those companion restrictions. Yeah, that makes sense. So a lot of the restrictions are pretty brutal and they make the companions not really seem worth it. Like you have to have CMC three or higher. Everything has to have the same card type. It has to have a different name and it has to have like even CMCs. But like we'll talk about one of the restrictions is definitely less awful and the payoff might be there like Luris of the Dream Den. Um, which is each permanent card in your deck has CMC two or less. And we'll definitely, like I said, be speaking about that. So that's a lot of mechanic talk. So thanks for bearing with us on that. But we pretty much have to talk about them to really get into kind of how these cards are going to be evaluated, I think. So Everett, since you're the guest, let's let you go first. I think probably with the card we were just referencing. Yeah, Luris of the Dream Den is... The card I'm most excited for in the set by a lot. There are a plethora of decks in Legacy, Modern, and Pioneer that already exist that I think this card goes right into. Yeah, so let's 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 read over the text because probably not everyone is digesting spoilers as much as we are. So what, what's it do? It is a one it's a three mana spell. It costs one mana and two of two hybrid Orzov mana for white or black mana. Um its companion ability, this is your deck building restriction, is each permanent card in your starting deck has a CMC of two or less. It is a 3-2 lifelinker, and during each of your turns, you may cast one permanent spell with CMC two or less from your graveyard, which is a pretty <laughs> powerful effect. It's, yeah. This seems like a just a constructed playable card that can always be in your opening hand if you build your deck around it. Yeah, it's really good, right? Yeah, the decks that I think that this automatically goes into that already exist um in in pioneer i think the orzov auras deck loves this card you're going to see it um Ooh. you're going to see it in, in in all of those decks in modern i i think that burn plays this card it's castable I've heard people talk about this it's pretty free it gives you a huge edge in the mirror it gives you a way to gr- outgrind jund and it's the opportunity cost is is very very low you just exchange one cyborg card to always have this in your in your hand and I, I'm a Legacy Storm aficionado. I play Ant and Legacy. And this is two free Storm and Legacy. With Lion's Eye Diamond, you play it and you can replay your Lion's Eye Diamond for free because it's in your sideboard, not your hand. It's always going to be free off of your Lion's Eye Diamond. In a lot of post-board matchups, people will uh, side out all of your creature removal against you and you'll just have a 3-2 that will make your Tindules of Agony cheaper. Um, I'm going to play this in Legacy Storm, which is very, very strange. I wasn't expecting <laughs> to say that about a three mana, three, two life waker, but I love it. I think it's really good. What do you think about this as like just a normal card in your deck? Like whether or not it's a companion, I think you can build around it. And I think that this could be a normal card in some decks. Um, but it's kind of weird. If you want to build around this card, you don't want it to be a four of in your deck. You just want it to be your companion. And I think the only reason you wouldn't want it to be your companion is if you have some three to five mana permanent that has a good payoff with Luris. Um, I think that I think that that is going to be where you see it in in decks more often. And I, I think that this card is constructed playable without companion. So we so we might see it, but I think we'll see it more often as a companion. Yeah, I mean the the value of that free eighth card is just it's really high i mean card advantage free card advantage that is built just baked in to a card like that is is wild it's 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 wild i will say that if people are going to start building companion decks i think that they should 
play more lands than they would otherwise. Uh, because you have an eighth card, you're going to get mana screwed less often. And I'd like to see people just playing like one more land on average. So this is a question that just occurred to me. Can you run four of these companions in your sideboard and just cast them whenever the previous one is killed? There's only one companion. Yeah, you can only reveal... You can have as many companions in your sideboard as you want, but at the beginning of the game, you can only reveal one. So if hypothetically your deck met two deck-building restrictions, you could have a game plan for a for games one and two, but you can only ever reveal one, and you can only ever cast it once. Interesting. From the sideboard. Yeah, it's 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 almost like why print this card? Like this is it's I think it's clearly designed to be like, hey, companion can be real. And and here's your crazy powerful companion card. And I'm I'm already hearing pros like you know Ari Lax and Zvi Malshevitz, like they're all basically saying like you should just pre-ban this card. I, I don't I don't usually support pre-banning a card. I'd like to at least play with it a little bit. I will say that all the other companions, they they really seem like they are not going to be pioneer, modern, legacy playable. No. It seems like this one was built with only standard in mind because standard decks are about three to five mana spells slamming into each other. This card, you know, can't do that. I don't think it was intended for pioneer to legacy, and I think it's going to be very good in all these formats. I I really don't support pre-banning anything. Like, people wanted to pre-ban Heliod in, in Pioneer. That was, like, the hot topic last time. Yeah. Yeah, they were talking about... Yeah, it was like uh, Heliod's here. Let's get rid of Walking Ballista. Let's let's just relax. Let's have some fun. If it's too good, we'll ban it. But I'm excited for this card. Talking about bans is the fun part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Everybody enjoys something something different. Some people love talking about bans. Yeah. So let's let's think about. I want to think about maybe one or two more applications, right? So what what can this do in in Pioneer? Perhaps like what do we have a concentration of permanent costs? two or less in many decks like or do we not have the critical mass of of cheap you know good permanence and pioneer yet like we do in modern i, I think that it, it will be very good in the auras deck but i actually think it'll be i think this card will be worse in pioneer and mod and legacy than it, it will be in pioneer because pioneer is also in a large way about three to five mana spells slamming into mm-hmm. each other big planeswalker heavy format you know lots uh lots of very important creatures at three and four CMC. And there aren't a ton of important creatures at three and four CMC in modern and legacy. Um, so I think this will be good in the auras deck, but I don't even think a deck like mono black aggro could even adapt to playing this card. I, I think rankle is, is too important. I think murderous rider yeah. is too important um, to have this eighth card in your deck. I could be wrong and I'd love to be wrong. Maybe like a white weenie deck could play this card, but I, uh, I I think that it will not see a ton of play in Pioneer as a companion. So it's we would be talking about stretching the mana base a little bit, but one of the Pioneer decks that I think already meets the companion clause is in Soul, which is sometimes Jeskai when it wants to run all that glitters. Don't they play the the uh, Artificer, the three mana? Skilled Animator. Yeah, it's, that's really important for the redundancy, I think. Uh, doesn't Lotus Breach meet this requirement? <laughs> I think it has, doesn't it have some more expensive spells? Like, doesn't it relies on granted quite a bit, doesn't it? Or like the Fey? The permanent half is Fey of Wishes, which is two CMC or lower. And then it, it, it this only cares about uh, permanent spells, two or less. Yeah, 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 so, yeah, you're right. I don't know. Like, you could just have a, you know, tap your Lotus Field for three black, play a three two Life Laker to protect, and, and also get your Lotus Breach back. 
Uh, or sorry, your, your Underworld Breach back from your graveyard if it's been countered. It, yeah, it probably goes in there too, unless there's uh, something I'm forgetting. But yeah, it doesn't does not stink. Seems pretty free. It seems pretty free. Well, this card I'm sure you'll see in action soon as people begin to to probably break it a little bit. Um, but ever let's since like I said, you're the guest. Let's just go through. Let's go through three of your picks first, just to focus on on uh, the cards you had you'd picked out here. So you also what you you and me, I think we both wanted to talk about Heartless Act. Oh yeah, I'd love to talk about. It. We can talk about it together. Um, <laughs> let's 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 join up on this one. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a big lover of Doomblade variants. I love that they're all basically the same card, but you can talk for hours about the pros and cons to each of them. Yeah, like Cast Down, uh, Go for the Throat. Ultimate Prize, yeah, Doomblade. And I think this is the best one we've ever seen. Uh, Heartless Act, uh, choose one, destroy target creature with no counters on it, or remove three counters from target creature. Um, for only one in the black, right? Instant. Yeah, for, for one in the black, instant, same thing as you know all the other Doomblade variants. I like that black has is getting better cheap spot removal um, because if you look at creatures that are seeing in play right now in pioneer and modern, this kills basically everything. Oh, it's everything. And the one creature that it doesn't immediately kill off the top of my head is um, walking ballista mm-hmm. and it can remove three counters from it to kill that. Well, I guess one exception is, is devoted Druid is could put a counter on it in response, but that card is not super popular, but I think, I think this card is, is quite good. Uh, it's very exciting. I like that even when it doesn't kill the creature, it can significantly weaken it. So it has some strength there too. Like a tireless tracker or a scavenging ooze, you make it a lot less valuable. It's a it's a card with a drawback that t- it immediately diminishes its own drawback, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, that's a that's a smart way to assess it, actually. Right? It's like yeah, even if you have counters, I'm still nerfing you quite a bit. Yeah, it's just it's easy to cast. It has a cheap cost. It's instant speed. It hits so many creatures. Um, the it's it's like you said. I think it's it has a supposed drawback, but it doesn't ever become invalidated altogether, like something like cast down might. Yeah, your, your doom blades, your cast down, your ultimate prices, those will rot in your hands against the creatures that they don't kill, but this will be castable and it can buy you time in your mid range and control decks, which are often good at getting two for ones and mitigating the card disadvantage that this would offer. If you use the second mode, is this a sideboard card? I think that this is a main board card and pioneer and modern, at least. Uh, I don't think that there are too many modern decks that are actually looking for a two mana removal spell, but more so in pioneer. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited about this. I've seen some people talk about an idea here, and I this is maybe a little bit of a, a derailment, but I've seen some people suggest playing no thought season inverter, playing this card instead of fatal push, and then you can also play the six mana even spells only companion, and then that companion will put either Thassa's Oracle or Inverter into play when you cast it. <laughs> I don't think that that's oh, man. good, but you know, you can you could play just the two mana discard spell, you could play this card. And then you have a pretty powerful six card always in your hand in Inverter. And that might be something I try. Because uh, that, that deck doesn't really play three CMC spells already. And Thought Erasure digs through your deck too. Yeah, yeah. So you can play no Thought Seize. You can play Thought Erasure and the, the two mana Exile uh, discard spell instead. And then you can play like Temple of Deceit because you're not doing anything on turn one. Just an idea. But it's exciting at least. Yeah, so coming soon to an Against the Odds video <laughs> near you. 
Um, yeah, this this card is just good. I mean, it's I'm glad that's not something we have to we don't have to digest or assess it too much. It's going to be seen in Pioneer as your new two mana less much less conditional black removal spell. I think it's something Pioneer really needed because uh, Doomblade and Ultimate Prize and Cast Down they all miss really key pieces, and this one doesn't miss really any of them. Scoos is another one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that is another really good, really good one to think about. And you know what? I bet the more we play this card, the more we'll see things that actually have counters. And maybe there will be some new cards from the new set that we see are constructed playable. Yeah, what I was thinking about is the mono green planeswalker deck that you helped popularize a lot, Everett, which is like, you know, you have your uh, Voracious Hydra comes in with counters, your Jade Light Rangers are getting the Explore counters a lot. You can put counters on stuff with your Vivian. So And 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 Nissa Lands get counters too. Maybe I'm just although this 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 card does still kill the Nissa Lands by removing the three counters. Yeah. Um but it's it's definitely helpful. Like it's it's this is kind of deck where I was like, sure. I mean, this is going to hit a lot of my stuff, but I'll be slightly happier to see it than something else, perhaps. We'll see. I'm very excited for this one. Okay, so speaking of green decks that run planeswalkers, we have the card you said that might be the new best five mana planeswalker, which is saying something. Yeah, it's I I try not to overhype things too much and. That, that is honestly how I'm evaluating this card, and I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, I'm super excited about this too. But Vivian's Monster's Advocate, it is a 5-mana Planeswalker. It has two static abilities, which we've never seen before. Uh, although I guess it's effectively one. But it, it lets you look at the top card of your library at any time, and then it says you may cast creature spells from your library uh, from the top of your library. Yeah, so what? that's that's like a... What's that effect called? It's an older card... Um... So Future Sight, I think, was the first time we saw this. And we've been seeing this more and more with, like, Bolas and Citadel, uh, Experimental Frenzy, Mystic Forge. And this is, I guess, the latest version. But I think that's... When you compare those cards, which all they do is let you cast spells from the top of their uh, of their library. This does a lot more. And it costs one more mana, but the color it's in is green. And mm-hmm. a five mana green spell is often comparable to a four mana spell in other colors. That's a good point. But what this is does, it comes down with three loyalty, but it immediately pluses to four, so it can dodge lightning bolt and modern to make a three three beast creature token. And you can choose either a vigilance counter, a reach counter, or a trample counter to go on the token. You also can minus two, and it says whenever you cast your next creature spell this turn, you can search your library for a creature's card with a lower converted mana cost and put it onto the battlefield and shuffle your library, which has incredible implications in Modern and Pioneer, being able to search your library for your most relevant creature and put it into play. I am very excited about this card. Mm-hmm. Same, big same, man. I, I, I do have some, some reactions. I do agree that plussing to make a body is a powerful effect, but you're also paying five mana for a four loyalty walker. And a three CMC creature seems a little underpowered. Or rather, a three power creature seems a little... A three power creature? It is a three power creature with an upside. A Vigilance, Reach, or Trample. When you look at, like, if you remember Garrick uh, Primal Hunter in Standard, that was also a five mana Planeswalker, and what that did more than anything was just make a three three every turn. This makes a better three three every turn. I, I, will, I will agree that it, it does start with one loyalty less, but everything else about this card... It's easier to cast. It does. It draws you way more cards, um, and it, like it tutors for other spells. 
I think that it's more powerful than Garrick Primal Hunter, and I remember that card being absurdly powerful in Standard. What I feel like, too, is like this is just one of the most green Planeswalkers I've seen in a really long time, and so she just fits in with what green is already trying to do super well. And, I mean, I'll admit, that's what I said about Nylea in the Theros spoilers, and we haven't really seen her show up. I felt Nylea synergized really well with what the green creature decks were doing already, but we saw those kind of go a more uh, Golgari route, and I don't think they really have room or need for the card. But I, I think that this synergizes really well with what, let's say, in Pioneer, like the the green Devotion Karn strategy is doing, because you're you're flooding the board with creatures. You're sticking a powerful planeswalker that can give you lots of value over uh, the long game. Whether that's creating just an army of three threes with you know vigilance, reach, you know, trample counters. Whether that's then being able to start minusing and getting you know, two for ones out of just casting your creatures, which you want to be doing anyway. So if you untap with this and you have a bunch of Nykthos mana available to you, or even if you have regular old amounts of mana to you, you cast a, a, another five drop, you cast a, even a four drop, you get another creature with you know three CMC and Pioneer is still plenty good of a creature typically. It's just a lot of value very quickly. Yeah, you get to play a lot of silver bullets in the like the mono green card and, and pioneer. You can play a scavenging ooze, a courser of crufix, a questing beast, and you can play voracious hydra and walking ballista and just Ugh. cast them for X and then get whatever you want out of your deck. And if you don't have if your hand is empty, you can start casting things from the top of your library and then get whatever you want out of your deck. It seems very, very powerful if you ever get to untap with it. Um yes. and I also think it plays really well alongside Nissa who shakes the world, and I'm glad that. They're, they are competing for that slot, but I think they play very well together because very often on turn three, playing the mono green deck, I'll cast Nissa and being able to untap a mana with Wolf Willow Haven, having another land available, I'll have five mana. And I think very often on turn three or four, you can cast Nissa Who Shakes the World and also cast this Ooh, Vivian. I'm sweating. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited uh, to, to play around with that. And I think in general, this on turn three will also just be insane. And really above rate. And I also not only like it on turn three, but I kind of love it on turn six onward where you potentially have this and you can actually take it down and cast another creature and just get like three permanents on the board in one turn. That seems really excellent. Yeah, give 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 me this with a bunch of like Nyssa and Nykthos mana. And I know it's, it's, it seems like a little bit of a win more. Like you're probably already in really good shape if you have that board state. But you know, just just this with a few blockers and some and some mana to work with. I think you're going to be able to untap with this for a number of turns. Yeah, I love seeing that reach counter on the beast token, being able to protect your planeswalkers from flyers. So so powerful. Yes, 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 yes. Because spirits is typically one of the best decks against mono green uh, walkers. I think because they're able to attack into your walkers so readily. Yeah, and and this um, dodges spell queller. They makes a creature that can block uh, a non boarded spell queller which is pretty cool. What do you feel about this in the modern format? We're talking a lot about its place in Pioneer. Do you see it having modern implications? I do. I, I think that for the most part, five mana planeswalkers are almost pushed out of modern. There are some exceptions, mainly only Teferi, Hero of Dominaria. But where I like this deck is in the Devoted Druid decks, the Devoted Druid shells, in the sideboard probably, but potentially the main deck. Uh, it seems like an excellent uh card to beat up on all of the mid-range and control decks we're seeing right now. 
Uh, this card seems like it generates so much card advantage uh, that most of the control decks and mid-range decks are not going to be able to beat it if it resolves. Yeah, give me that that easy Vizier into Devoted Druid off the minus. Yes, please. That deck has always really struggled against mid-range and control. And so maybe this is the card that deck needs to re-emerge into the metagame. Well, Stan, we gave we gave Everett three cards. We'll probably have some time for some more quick hits later, but I think uh, you and I can focus on some of our picks here. Why don't you go first? Oh, sure. What's a card you're looking at? I'm looking at lots of cards. The first one that jumped out to me is blue. And it's called the Sea Dasher Octopus. It's a very speedy octo. Octo means eight. That's how many <laughs> tentacles it has. One UU for a flash, two, two. When this creature deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. And it also has mutate for one and a blue. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, it seems like a slightly more expensive, but also I think strictly better Curious Obsession. Well, I, I don't know about if I'd call it strictly better. Uh, it's it's two mana compared to one. An obsession gives plus one plus one. Uh, although although you could, if the two two is bigger than what you're enchanting, then that is that is effectively the same. And and it's and it does mitigate curious obsessions uh, downside that when you don't have anything to put it on, this can still just be a a creature to to play on its own. Yes. That was definitely one of the things I was thinking about. That like sometimes Curious Obsession, just you spent one mana and you get nothing and it falls off. I also love the fact that you can play this at instant speed. Yeah, I think that's excellent. I, I wonder if there's a, a counterspell-based deck that lets you hold this up. And if they don't play anything, you flash it in and you just start drawing cards. If that deck exists, I think that's a deck I would play. Yeah, a lot of people have been comparing this to like what Ninja of the Deep Hours which I've never really seen a lot of constructed play outside of Pauper. Um, but this this does more, I think, for sure. I, I, I would say that this is probably better than Ninja of the Deep Hours, um, which is exciting because that's a card I, I do like a lot. It's always felt on the verge of being modern playable to me. I mean, one of the cool things about this card is that even though the Mutate is so aggressively costed, it can still go in creature light decks because it just has that ability and you can still just flash it in. So like on turn three, if you're holding this and like Archmage's Charm or, you know, a, a cancel effect and opponent doesn't do anything, now you have a beater that gets you up on cards. And if you have cards in your deck like Snapcaster Mage and Spellsitter Sprite that already give you value when they enter the battlefield and you can just upgrade that creature and not care so much if it dies because you've already gotten value out of it, I, I could definitely see... Um, I could definitely see this going well in uh, you know a tempo based deck in modern or pioneer. Yeah, it's really good. Um, I think it's going to see some kind of play, and that's all I ask for, right? Like, g- give me these weird cards. Give me a give me a really fast octopus that's going to draw me some cards. Give me something that's at least worth testing, even if it doesn't make the cut in the end. At least it's not embarrassing to put this in your deck <laughs> at first. Octopuses are fast in real life. I don't know if you guys have seen them, but they're they're quick. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, they they move. They'll break out of jail. <laughs> Shane, are there any cards you like in this set? A card I'm looking at, Stan, and I think everyone's looking at is a uh, Fiend Artisan, which is uh, two CMC total. It's a uh, hybrid Golgari mana, so it's Golgari mana, Golgari mana, 
Uh, it's a nightmare creature. It gets plus one, plus one for each creature card in your graveyard. Uh, enters the battlefield as a one-one by default. It has an ability for uh, X and a Golgari hybrid mana. Uh, tap it, sacrifice another creature. Search your library for a creature card with CMC cost X or less. Put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. Uh, do this only we can do a sorcery. This is kind of absurd. Like this is definitely, I think, one of the holy crap cards of the set so far. I would have said it was kind of the only like holy crap card until we saw uh, Luris of the Dream Den spoiled. It's a toolbox. It's a beater. It's a birthing pod variant you can collect a company for like at your end step. Um, I think this fits into like Vengevine, Yogmoth, like aristocrat style decks. It certainly reads as an oh crap card. I definitely agree with that. But I, I think that I personally think this card might be a trap. I'm not sure. It's very hard to evaluate. But it's creature cards are probably the hardest type besides planeswalkers to quickly get into your graveyard. So I think that this will be very often a two mana one one. That's a good point. Um, for two mana, the sacrifice ability is also very powerful, but mana intensive. Yes, and requires you to already have another creature in play, and it requires you to untap with a two mana spell. And these are all things that tend to make creatures not constructed playable, requiring you to untap, being small early. I would love to see this card be good, and it has, I think, a lot of potential. But I, I also have the feeling, my gut is telling me that this card is supposed to wow you. It's supposed to look really flashy, yeah. but actually not be a constructed powerhouse. That's one thing I've noticed with a lot of these, a lot of the spoiler season cards is like, this does so much, but then you're like, but it needs so much setup. And, and that's, that's like the exciting thing about magic. And, uh, it's, it's certainly, it certainly is very, very sweet. Um, and I think being able to evaluate the difference between actually competitive and, and powerful, there, there is, there is a big difference. You know, even if this card does get to live up to its potential and the ceiling I, on it, I think is pretty high, right? Like in a toolbox strategy, some kind of combo deck, that ceiling isn't as scary knowing that we already have answers for it too. Like, I love that this card is coming out when Ashiok is this super popular sideboard card we already talked about in this episode. And it feels like even if toolbox decks get stronger because of something like this, at least we know it's not necessarily going to be like an Oko problem where we have no way to answer it either. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I think this card will often die to shock on turn two, <laughs> which is which is really important. Yeah, I think I think it's it's got a lot of things it does. It sort of feels like a self-contained engine that also takes advantage of the engine it's providing. But like you said, it, it, it's it needs a lot to be happening for it. And it's hard for, for you to cast it early and have it be a large enough creature to avoid burn based removal. It dies to a lot of black removal. Something that we're seeing, or at least my opinion on, you know, this set so far, Elob, a lot of these cards, especially these two drops are so, so pushed. And I feel like this card, on the other hand, almost feels like very balanced. It, it, you know, it, it has more like conditions that it needs to meet as opposed to like some of the other cards that we might talk about today that are just like, you can put this into a deck and it doesn't have as many conditions. It's just a great value at two mana. In fact, I'd love to talk about one of them now. 
Oh, please. <laughs> I'm excited for this one. I, I think I know which one you're talking about. So one of those two drops that I think look pretty pushed is Sprite Dragon. So this is blue and a red for a 1-1 Flying Haste. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put a 1-1 counter on Sprite Dragon. Right out the gate, Everett, I don't know if you know this about me. Historically, I've been a Blue Moon player, and this seems like a great new toy for that strategy in particular, or really any Blue-Red X style control strategies. Yeah, I was actually playing Blue-Red Delver in, uh, in Modern today. We are talking a lot about this card, a lot of hype around it. I... I think that there are a few different ways you can take is it decks uh, like really two different ways you can take it. There are more controlling strategies that when threats you can just play and they'll sit there and win the game and you can just cast your counter spells and your removal spells and you know your Delver of Secrets or your young Pyromancer will eventually kill your opponent. And then there are threats like Dreadhorde Arcanist, Monastery Swiftspear, um, Soulscar Mage that want you to be casting pump spells and burn spells in your turn and play very aggressively. Sprite Dragon is very interesting because it's both. Because this this card want, could, can very easily just be aggressive with burn spells, pump spells, counter spells, mutagenic growth, uh, Mistress Bobble, you can just get in there with Monastery Swift Spear and Dreadhorde Arcanist. But they are plus one counters, they're not prowess triggers. So you can play it and you can just attack with it and you can just counter your opponent's spells, very slowly be growing your Sprite, sprite Dragon. And I, I'm very excited about that. I think this is going to fit in a lot of different shells. So right out the gate, this is just a better Storm Chaser Mage, right? Yes, yes, I think so. Um, absolutely. They they both get saved from Lightning Bolt with Mutagenic Growth, which is uh, pretty exciting to me. I think Storm Chaser Mage was always on the cusp of being good, and I think that this is what Storm Chaser Mage needed to be. Yeah. N- notably, this is not a wizard for Wizard's Lightning. Oh, no. Um, but, it, but it is a dragon for Silumgar's Scorn. <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe a better card. Which is probably not good. I don't, I don't, I don't think we have enough dragons, but I think that... If we ever get one more cheaply costed dragon, we'll see that card see play. Yeah, so something that I keep thinking about with this card in particular is whether it's actually better than Young Pyromancer and and whether we want to go tall versus go wide. Mm-hmm. Because this is the type of card that I think is similar to Pyromancer in that there's going to be a lot of situations where you just want to hold it until turn three or four. I, I agree completely. Um, I've always liked Young Pyromancer more than like Brineborn Cutthroat Dreadhorde Arcanist, uh, Thing in the Ice. Because um, I've always felt like Young Pyromancer is the card that you can play and get back when you're behind on card advantage and when you're behind on board. Uh, Thing in the Ice can get you back uh, behind on board, but not really when you're behind on card advantage. And this doesn't solve that problem. Um, and, and that's always where the blue-red deck struggles is when it gets behind on cards. And Young Pyromancer is like the one threat that gets you back up. And that's why I have always preferred it. But... Sprite Dragon is a lot better in an aggressive deck, I think, than Young Pyromancer is. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting where you want to be with it. Yeah, because Sprite Dragon can have that burst damage that you can't you just cannot get with Pyromancer. Mm-hmm. It's got haste. It has haste, which is a very good keyword. Yeah, like give me give me give me this with like a mutagenic growth and a, some and some other pump spells. Let me become immense this thing. Bada boom. Uh, a while ago, I was brewing with a Teamer Prowess deck in Modern that played Scale Up and Monastery Swiss Spear, Soul Scar Mage, and then you yeah. also had Dreadhorde Arcanist to flash back your Scale Up. And I always felt like I really wanted one more good threat. I played Storm Chaser Mage, and I didn't like Storm Chaser Mage, but maybe this is what that deck needed to be good. 
even if they have flying blockers, maybe you have like a crash through or two in there. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> I like this card a lot. I think it's going to be a real player in magic. It also pitches the force of will and legacy. If, uh, if you're interested in that. I'm not, but I'm glad you are. <laughs> I'm very interested. And Force of Negation in Modern. Oh, yeah, that is that is true. Yeah, very good point, Stan. And whatever the Red Force is, also in Modern. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, man. I don't think I, I don't think I could uh, I don't think I could say that off the top of my head. Have you even brewed with that one? There's there's no point. I don't think <laughs> uh, I don't think it's there. Because I saw you, one of the, I think the early things you were brewing with was like the the Force of what, Vigor? Is that the white one? No, Force of Vigor is the green one. I see this every time. Force of Virtue. Yeah, you were doing some Force of Virtue shenanigans early on. Yeah. I still think that's good. Uh, I, I, some others, I've seen some other streamers playing it uh, recently, but I, I think it's still good. Well, it wouldn't be an episode, a spoiler episode, if I didn't talk about a human. Yes. That has, has potential human implications. And so I'm going to talk about General Kudro of Dranith. Uh, He's one white black for a 3-3 legendary human soldier. He has the the human lord text. Other humans you control get plus one, plus one. Interestingly, whenever it he enters or other humans enter the battlefield under your control, you can exile a target card from an opponent's graveyard. Actually, it does not give you the option, so I guess you just have to. Um, You can pay two mana, sacrifice two humans, throw them into the wood chipper, Destroy target creature with power four or greater. So this is three mana. So for three mana, your humans have to do a lot because right now the humans or even non-humans, you have what the Vidalcan wizard, I think of, uh, de- of detention, detention man, detention wizard. Um, that's what, that's what he's called. Yeah. Yeah. That's its name. Official name now. So three mana, you have to do a lot. So, it probably has some space in those flex spots at the three mana spot in humans. I could be overestimating the Lord ability a little bit at three mana. Three mana is not cheap and it does only give you plus one, plus one to your humans. So you have to have a board at that point. It's not catching you up if you're behind, but probably, especially because the, the sacrifice ability also requires you to have a board to destroy a target creature. So it's kind of one of those things where you're not going to say, I want four of these because it's just so good, I think. So I think the abilities here are sort of gravy, right? Like it's, it's, it's nice that it's not really asking you to, to shade, to sacrifice anything to exile a target card from a graveyard. It's not asking you to immediately sacrifice two humans. It's saying if there's a creature on the other side with power four or greater that you want out of there, you can throw a couple of your smaller creatures, maybe like a noble hierarch. You don't need that much anymore. Um, you know, some other small, maybe a Thalia is, didn't really get a lot of counters on it. You know, there's, there's stuff you can throw into there and say, I really need this primeval Titan or this flying blocker. Uh, off the battlefield mm-hmm. or an Uro or a Kroxa. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, exiling cards from graveyards just by casting your creatures anyway, is just worthwhile, right? Like you're, you're taking some kind of value away from many of your opponents. So I don't think this is like some kind of game breaking card. That's going to push humans into some new stratosphere. I think it's one of the cards that goes into the pile of three mana considerations, like along with your, uh, Detention creature. Why am I forgetting the name of that creature? <laughs> deputy of detention. Thank you. The, the the deputy, not not the sheriff. We don't have a sheriff here yet. We have a general, and I think he'll be part of the the cast of three mana cards you're considering in your modern humans deck. 
I just have to defer to you, man. I've never cast a human other than Snapcaster Mage in my life. Yeah, I, I, I agree with uh, I agree with Shane. I, I do think that graveyard hate is very important right now in Magic. Even the fair decks, they really care about their graveyard with Snapcaster Mage, Uro, Kroxa. This comes down after that your opponent has cast their Uro or their Kroxa. It just gets it out of out of there forever, which I think is really important. Um, I think that this will be playable in humans. I don't think it'll be played every single week in humans, but it'll be nope. something to keep in your deck box as mm-hmm. as you go forward. And I love cards like that. I love cards that make you think and make you know the format, and I'm really excited for this one. Yeah, it's a good one. This one could have been cool when Is It Phoenix was a deck in modern. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we've got Uro taking over the format now. So this like like Everett was saying, it definitely I think will will start of it start as maybe a two of just to sort of be like, okay, we we don't really need the deputy right now. We can, we don't really need a, um, a militia bugler. We can just run a couple of these, see how well it's going to do. Maybe it goes up, maybe it goes down. And I wonder if if the the humans from this set, alongside Thali's lieutenant, give enough to pioneer for a human tribal deck to exist there. Exactly. I I don't know, but I, I'm sure someone does. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people have been talking kind of about like an Orzov build mm-hmm. uh, immediately. I haven't really seen any like theory crafted deck lists on that, but I think that there's a there's a good amount of them. I think that the um, what's the card that when you cast a multicolored, uh, you know, it, it pumps it, it makes a token. Uh, uh, I didn't play enough standard to know the name off the top of my head, but it, yeah, multicolored creature, you get a human token. Yeah, so that would be pretty cool. So, like, if you have some multicolored humans, you're casting this. It's pumping up your other humans. It, that'll be a nice little one-two punch. Yeah, there's also the human that there's also the human knight that makes human tokens when you cast knights. So maybe you have a knight sub theme and you play Thali's mm. lieutenant and the general as your human pumpers. Hero of Precinct One. Yes, yes. That's oh, thank it. you. It's interesting. This is a it's a soldier, not a knight. So there's probably going to be a mix of the two. So I think that's there's there's all sorts of ways to use this card. It will see some play. It's going to be a, a good card for you to have in your suite of cards. And also, what's good is I think it's kind of being overshadowed by other mythics right now. So you can probably snag them reasonably costed. Your financial tip for the week, <laughs> guys. I've got another. Is it creature for you? No way. Believe it. You me. Rael the Everwise, one blue-red for a legendary human wizard. She gets plus one, plus zero for each instant or sorcery card in your graveyard. Whenever you discard one or more cards for the first time each turn, draw that many cards, and she's an 0-3. So right out the gate, when I saw this, I thought it could actually just replace Crackling Drake in Pioneer Is It Phoenix. And even though it's not necessarily as great of a finisher as Crackling Drake can be because it flies for lethal usually the next turn after you cast it, I do love that it both scales as you play Plan A of Is It Phoenix, but it also just makes all of your looting effects and your Is It charms just insane. I could definitely see it in that spot. Um, the card reads incredibly powerful. I also think if we were talking about specifically Pioneer, Three toughness does not, it's not so much of a downside like it is in modern. Totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as you can dodge shock and uh, and also being three CMC is also kind of an upside in Pioneer because it's hard to revolt a fatal push, but it's very easy to cast the front half. Yeah. So I think this card will be 
uh, you'll be untapping with this card way more often than you will be in modern. And I could definitely see it in modern. Is it Phoenix or pioneer? Is it Phoenix rather seems, seems very potentially powerful. Some of the things that I also like about this card is it pairs pretty nicely with madness spells and like baby Jace. So cards that you're already like dumping into the yard, it gives you additional value off of them. And uh, when I talked about, you know, something like is a charm, if you have this on the board and you cast an is a charm, you draw two, discard two, draw two more. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's no longer card neutral. It's a killer card advantage engine that just feels like it checks off so many boxes that it's another one where I'm not even embarrassed to test it. It seems more and more Wizards is giving us three mana creatures that if you untap with them, you can generate huge amounts of advantage, but you just don't untap with them very often. This may be one of the best ones we've ever seen, and I'm very excited to cast this card. Notably, in older formats, this card does get bounced very hard by Teferi Time Raveler, (laughs) and that's probably like one of the checks that Wizards is thinking about when they print a card like this. Yeah, so I kind of look at this as something a little bit like Tireless Tracker, where it's like, you know, if you get the chance to get some value off of it, whether that's you cast it on turn four and have like a, a one mana enabler to do something with it immediately, whether that's, you know, casting it on three and hoping to untap with it or casting it on three, you already have so many instants and sorceries in your graveyard somehow, like maybe you in modern, maybe you had like a thought scour effect, something like that. A cathartic reunion. Sure. Go for it. That sounds good to me. Like discarding a bunch of cards and drawing a bunch of cards. I'm fine with it. Be a wonderful commander if you're if you're into that. I think that this would be a really, really fun commander to build around. Oh, that's a good point. We don't talk about that awful format on this podcast, but <laughs> we're brawl boys here. Yeah. I, I've never played brawl. You might may, might be able to convince me. No, we're not. We're not really. He's lying. We've never played brawl. <laughs> I don't even think it's real. <laughs> I yeah. I want to I want to hit another card stand unless you have anything else you want to talk about uh Riel. I think this is a, kind of an interesting sort of like cycle. It's not really a mechanic of uh the set. And uh the example I have is Mythos of Nethroi. Again, just rolls off the tongue. Um two and a black for an instant. Destroy target non-land permanent if it's a creature or if green and white was spent to cast this spell. So basically that means if you cast black, green, white, you get to destroy any non-land permanent. Or if you pay two and a black, you destroy a creature. So it's sort of like a Vindicate, not really as good as Vindicate because Vindicate could tag lands. Um, And so this is kind of like the cycle where it's like it's a single colored mana to cast it normally, but if you cast it using the enemy colored mana as well, you get kind of an additional value. So it checks some boxes, but it also costs three mana and it forces you to be an Obzon because you're not really going to run this in just a, a black base deck. So like, let's say you're in like Obzon mana and you don't have your Obzon colors up yet. Like you, you know, you just didn't hit them yet. You can get at least tag a creature with it, which is at least, you know, kind of a fail safe. And again, it can't just be cast for green-white because uh, it has the black in the casting cost naturally. So I don't think this is like getting there all the time, if ever. But Obzon is definitely a color combo in, in modern that needs some help. I'm not sure if this really does enough to even 
you know, see modern play over some other options we have at the same CMC, uh, maybe Pioneer. Like it, it sort of says there, here's some, some Obzon, some reasons to move into Obzon because we don't really have something so unconditional right now, I think. But like, you know, we have Abrupt Decay, we have Murderous Rider. This, this can get a whole lot of stuff. I think if you can cast this in Pioneer, it'll be really good. I think it'll be really hard to cast. Yes. Uh, it's interesting. This is a reason to be Abzan. You have a reason to be Sultai in Uro. And you kind of have a reason to be Black Green because your mana actually is good <laughs> if you're straight Black Green, which is cool for deck building considerations. Um, I would love for a Mythos of Nethro Eye, uh, Siege Rhino, Amzadag Ghost Council deck to be good. And I kind of hope that this card pushes us in that direction. Whenever we talk about Abzan, are we really asking, like, is this the card that will help us cast Siege Rhinos? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> is Siege Rhino that good anymore? I don't even know. Like, it's 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 awesome playing the early Niv decks. I don't know. There's a lot of 6-6s six flying around right now. I I It's just so hard to outgrind Uro. Yeah. I think that it's almost impossible to do it as, as an Abzan deck. And this is not the card that helps you beat Uro. So I, I think that if we see a card that's in Abzan Colors and helps you squash an Uro, then maybe maybe we get there. I have a, I have a Human General to point oh. you to in Abzan Colors. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Heard it here first. It's going to break the format. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just it's a card that I think, you know, you're not going to rush out and buy a play set of these, but it, it has some implications. It's a, it's a good, like, pretty wide hitting removal spell at instant. So it checks a lot of boxes. I think it's a card you play if you're already there, but it's not a card that's going to bring you there. Yeah. Yeah. And hitting any planeswalker, I think is pretty important too. I agree. I agree. You want to do a couple quick hits before we move into the wind down to bug Everett with some questions. Sure. Our quick hits, more magic cards. <laughs> yeah. More magic cards. Yeah. Some, All some, right. uh, you know, we're, we're sticking with the baseball theme. Unfortunately, we're not watching any baseball right now. Um, I think a card that's interesting is, uh, dire tactics, white and a black instant speed exile target creature. If you don't control a human, you lose life equal to that creature's toughness. That seems like it has some play. I mean, like a white-black taxes deck, a white-black humans deck like we were talking about. Um, it's it's It doesn't have the same drawback of path. Seems pretty good. It's It's got potential for sure. The exile is huge. The exile is huge right now. Uh, I, I could see it in, in both Pioneer and, and Modern uh, in a more taxing style. I don't think it goes in like the Modern humans deck though because you can't ever cast this card with your cavender souls and your yeah modern humans. No, I don't think so, but I, I think that there's potential here. I don't think that there currently exists a deck that this card really slots into, but maybe we can see one. I got a quick hit for you. What do you think about skull profit black green three, one, you can tap it to add black or green, or you can tap it to put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard. The card's cool, but two mana mana dorks with one toughness, I think, are probably like if we're talking about pioneer and modern. I think that this card will probably not be as good as like Sylvan Carrioted or Paradise Druid, just because you need to untap with those. Um, also, like two mana mana dorks that get to ferried on the draw, really, really shaky. But putting the top two cards of your library is exciting. It's very exciting. That's the part that sticks out to me. Like 
I feel like more often than not, you're putting it because you want to dump cards into your graveyard more than make mana. Maybe this is better at doing that than I'm currently like just reading it as. And if it is, then I think this could enable you know more Soul Flayer decks, more um, more of like the the Dredge style decks and Pioneer. One thing I wanted to ask you all about, maybe I was overlooking something, but Luminous Broodmoth, okay? Two white, white. Insect, whenever a creature you control without flying dies, return it to the battlefield with a flying counter on it. For th- It's a 3-4. Is this an engine? Like, how many cards right now immediately bring back a creature that has died back to the battlefield? Yeah, I think this card is a, a very good engine, even. This card uh, goes off with Undying and Persist Creatures and a Sack Outlet. And it's also protection for your other creatures um, from from sweepers. And it's also on a mm. reasonable sized body. I'm I'm pretty into the card. I think that it's going to be good in like the Kitchen Finks, Devoted Druid, Giralf's Messenger, Yawkmoth style decks. Um, as it, It's kind of maybe not necessarily obvious that it synergizes with Undying and Persist. Um, but I've, I've talked to judges about it. I'm pretty sure this does work. But it comes back with the Undying counter. I think it doesn't have the Flying counter. Then you sack it again. It comes back with the Flying counter. It doesn't have the Undying counter. And you just do that over and over again. So, so sack outlet, kitchen finks, draft's messenger. Your you either gain infinite life, you kill your opponent. You could splash white in the in the um, Yogmoth deck. You could play play this in the devoted druid deck, or you could just slap all those cards together. Could go with Vivian, monsters advocate, and pioneer to search up your combo pieces. Or in modern, I think this card's really good. Yeah, it seems like it's a novel effect, mm-hmm. and novelty is important. It's also not legendary, and it seems like it should be, but it's not. That's, a, that's weird. Yeah. Not that they're yeah, good in multiples, but... I also think this is a nice example of good Godzilla art. I love that this is Mothra. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. I honestly love... I, I love the, the goofy Godzilla alternate art oh, promos. Oh, sure. I love Why it. Not? I, I think a lot of people are negative on it. I think they're very cool. It doesn't get in the way. And and I love that a lot of those Godzilla cards have like literally two other art styles to choose from. So you have yeah. just, yeah. A, they're going to be super cheap. If you need a card and there's a Godzilla printing, it's going to have like a budget version of it. I love the comic art in a lot of these because it looks, it's it's funny. Like um, our, our friend who did the art for our tokens, uh, Ben Dewey, he's a professional comic artist. And I, I just like... I mean, not to dismiss his abilities, but I'm like, it looks like Ben could do all, all of these. They look like, like you know, professional, awesome comic book art. And if you're into that kind of art, you're going to have a lot of cool cards to choose from. If you're into like the, the classic monster poster art, you're going to have cards to choose from. If you don't want either of those, get, get the regular one. Good on you. A little something for everybody. Stan, should we head on into uh, the wind down for some questions for Everett? I think that's a good idea. We need to get down to the truth, and he can't hide from our questions a minute longer. All right. We will take a quick break. When we return, we got the wind down with Aspiring Spike. Stay with us. (music) 
So before we recorded this episode, we put out a call to our patrons in the Super Secret Slack channel to ask if there's anything specific they wanted to ask you about Modern, Pioneer, or even things that are exclusive and, and unique to you. All right? Sure. So I'll start with Craig Tireless Tracker, who asked... You used to be a big proponent of black-green X mid-range decks in Pioneer once upon a time. What are your thoughts on the archetype now? So I, I was a big player of a black-green rock deck in Pioneer before the new Theros came out. I really liked that deck. And then Uro got printed, and the Soultide deck emerged as the premier black-green mid-range deck in the format. I think that, that if you want to play black-green mid-range, that's what you need to play. Because, you know, straight black-green, Abzan, Jund... They cannot outgrind an Uro. You're you're gonna lose. Yep. I was main decking four scavenging oozes and like cling to dust to as black green to try to hedge against Uro, and I was still losing. And I I think that I think I think that Sultai is a very good deck in Pioneer, and I think that if you want to play it, just play just play the Sultai decks. I like this one from uh from Lou L. Uh what do you think is kind of like one of your biggest level up moments? in terms of uh, modern gameplay specifically, but I think you can just talk about any gameplay at all if you something else pops to mind. The the one in most recent memory is finally figuring out how to play with the London Mulligan, I guess. After years and years of playing with the Vancouver Mulligan and just the old Mulligan rule, it took a long time to adjust and Mulligan very aggressively. Like, you used to be so conditioned to keep medium hands because Mulliganing was devastating with the uh, older Mulligan rules. But the London Mulligan, I think mulliganing very aggressively is how you need to approach the game now. And I think I finally I finally got there. Um, is that a good or a bad thing, do you think? I, I think it's a good thing. Um, I personally love the London Mulligan. I think that I'm someone who enjoys Magic to be a lower variance game. Uh, I know that's not how everybody likes to play the game. That's how I like to play it. And the London Mulligan, in my opinion, reduces variance for both fair decks and unfair decks. Um, you know, especially in modern for a long time, it felt like as a fair deck, you would usually lose to an unfair deck in game one, but rely on your very impactful sideboard cards for games two and three. And you could usually find them in one of your two sideboard games consistently, but not super often both. And so you'd be unfavored in the matchup But with the London Mulligan. You can Mulligan for your ley line or your stony silence or your force of negation, um, which I love. I really, I really, really like the London Mulligan. But I, I do, I, I do understand that some people dislike that the London Mulligan makes for less varied gameplay, mm-hmm. which is totally fine. It's just a different way to uh, experience the game. So here's a non-magic question from friend of the show, Jason. Are you keeping up with your D and D campaigns over video chat during the pandemic? Yes, we're using uh, Roll20. I told you I had, a, I had a hard or a soft stop. That's what my stop is for, is for a <laughs> D&D campaign. I'm, I'm only playing twice a week now. I was playing I was playing three. One of them we weren't able to keep going. Um, there are pros and cons to it. Both of the DMs are exceptionally uh, dedicated, and they have like all these very intricate maps on the site on, on Roll20, and I've really enjoyed it, but I miss seeing my friends in person. I miss those reactions. It's not it's not the same thing, but it's it's keeping me afloat in, in this trying time. Something that my friends and I have been looking at lately are ways to play board games remotely. Mm-hmm. And we found this thing on Steam called Tabletop Simulator. Oh, dude, that rules. It's so good. Yeah, it, it looks awesome for both board games, but it also has like really interesting scenarios you can use for RPGs as well. 
Awesome. I'll have to look into that. Uh, maybe it's better than Roll20. It's the only thing I've ever used is uh, is Roll20. And I don't really play D&D, so <laughs> <laughs> I have no dog in this race. Um, and as as of the pioneer, kind of primary pioneer aficionado on the pod, I'll ask another uh, question from Jason. He says, Pioneer has been on Magic Online 167 days, I guess as, 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 uh, as the hour he asked. What are your current opinions on the format? Like, what do you think's good? What do you think's not so good? Um, and then kind of a follow-up, if someone wanted to play in an eternal format, which I guess could be anything, right? Like Popper, Legacy, Modern, Pioneer, um, where would you tell them to start? Um, I like Pioneer still. I think that it is a, a good and fun format. I think that once the Inverter deck emerged, I think that it stopped Pioneer from being a place where new brews could really, really emerge. New brews can emerge, but it really feels like Splinter Twin felt like an, an old modern where you'd have a cool idea for a deck and then you're like, oh, this deck can never beat Splinter Twin. And it's kind of the same way. Like lots of new brews just die because they can't beat Inverter. I think Inverter in the current metagame is maybe okay and it's probably not too good to ban. But I honestly don't, I just don't love its presence in the format and I'd like to see it go. I think that it's still fine. Uh, I would really recommend the mono green Karn deck. That's what I've been on for a long time. I think that it's very, very good in the format. I would recommend playing that yeah, too. I love that deck. But but also, I get this question a lot. Like, I, I want to get into a format. What deck should I pick up? And there are two ways to answer the question. You can tell them the decks that are easy to pick up. But, but what I instead tell people is find a deck that interests you and learn how to play it, no matter how difficult it is. Mm-hmm. Because even though you're going to lose maybe the first... 20, 30, 40 matches or just not understand how to play it. If that's what interests you, you should play it. You know, life is too short to just play what's easy and not what you're interested in. Do you have a preferred format? Do you think the beyond standard? Uh, It changes from time to time. Like it's been pioneer, modern legacy and limited EDH right now. It's probably modern. It was pioneer for a long time. It's been legacy for a long time. I think modern's great right now. I think pioneer could be um, really good again if Ikora gives us a lot of new brews. You mean Ilob? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll just be a commander player in two months and that's all I'll do. <laughs> that's kind of like the cool thing about Magic, why it never gets stale. There's just a different way to play the game if you're getting bored of what you're currently doing. You know, one of the things that sticks with me from uh, an earlier episode of uh, the, um, the Arena Decklist podcast was Brian and Jerry were, said that magic is a puzzle that you're constantly solving and is constantly changing. And that has that, that's definitely one of the things that draws me to magic. Yeah, exactly. It's It's super unique, has more replayability than any other game I've ever played. I like it. I recommend Magic the Gathering to the <laughs> listeners of the podcast. Yeah, so, so all you new listeners. <laughs> uh, here's another kind of inside question, and it, it might be the last one. Maybe we'll have another quick one after this. But uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the podcast called Faithless Brewing, but the one of the hosts of that show, Cave Dan, is in our Slack. Cave Dan is a big proponent of the Niv-to-Light decks, especially in modern. I believe Cave Dan may have invented that deck once upon a time. And I guess this is a two-parter. A, have you ever played Niv-to-Light, especially in modern? And whether or not you have, what do you think about its position right now, since it seemed to do very well this past weekend in some MTGO events? Uh, I have never played Niv to Light. It's the kind of deck that I really just don't gravitate towards, like clunky-ish mana, although 
that's debatable and just really at sorcery speed. But I do understand the deck, and I, I've watched uh, Gabriel Nassif play a lot of the deck. Um, so I, I, I'll say this. Modern is really, really mid-range focused right now, and there's no mid-range deck that beats up on other mid-range decks like the Niv-Mizzet deck. I think that it also has Renin Six and Arkham's Astrolabe to help the mana disruption from the, the, the Ponza deck. And I think it's just in a really weird position. I will say for the Lotus Box tournament, more so than a super qualifier or a challenge, those those tournaments, the Star City tournaments, I found tend to be way more slanted towards mid-range decks than like a PTQ or a GP would be. Um, just like Star City tournaments tend to be so way more mid-range heavy than than like GPs or PTQs. And I think if that's the case, Niptolite was an excellent choice for that tournament. I think that it's still going to struggle a lot against big mana and combo strategies, and that's not going to change a lot. Um, but I think it's probably in a good spot right now, and I doubt it'll stay there for very long. So matchups are good. Mm-hmm. Format is exploitable. Yes. Um, I think this last question is probably the easiest one yet, and it's <laughs> it's kind of a fun one to ask someone who's at your level that's thinking about like high-level competitive magic. And this is a, you know, we're a casual spike show, and this is more on the casual spectrum of that. Do you have a favorite color to play in Magic? Th- this question comes from friend of the show, Joe. <laughs> it's blue. Uh, no, you monster. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's it's definitely blue. Uh, played lots of just nothing but blue decks and Legacy for years and years and modern. Yeah. You are you are a total Dave replacement. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean... I, isn't blue secretly everybody's favorite color? I don't, I, I don't, I don't like it sometimes. Yeah, it's like I think the like the only reason why people hate blue is because it's so sweet and powerful, right? It just does too many cool things. I don't know. Yeah, like cast oh, three three mana three one flyers. Yeah. <laughs> um, Everett, uh, I want to give you some time to promote yourself. Tell people where they can find you, where they can watch you, where they can interact with you on the internet. Yeah, I'm Aspiring Spike on Twitch.tv, YouTube, and Twitter. Just Aspiring Spike, those two words smashed together. You can find me. Hey, and we'll have links to this in the show notes of the episode. Cool, cool. I just like being on podcasts. I'm just here to hang out. And you have a great stream, man. I, I gotta say, like, I'm not buttering your bread. One of my favorite streamers to watch. I appreciate that, Stan. Oh, yeah. One of the one of the few I watch. Um my schedule's been off because of the coronavirus stuff, but you know, you're you're always my uh my morning watch. I always have you on. Mm-hmm. That's right. I stream in the mornings on weekdays, but I've been streaming uh, also in the nights and even in weekends sometimes because of the the quarantine. Word. Well, thanks a ton for being on with us. Uh it's been awesome. Very, very natural to have you on as a co-host. Awesome. I'm sure we'll have you back unless you get your own pod in the in the near future, but don't do that. Just come back on as a guest here. Yeah, I won't do it so I can keep coming back as a guest. I would listen to your pod. (laughs) All right, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brains on something in Modern or Pioneer, you can always tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon, where joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. You can check that out over at patreon.com slash the dive down. Of course, shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring our show. 
Sign up for Manitraders using promo code the dive down, all one word, to get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. Special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music, and aspiring Spike, Everett Mufan, for joining us on this episode. And until next week, stay inside and cast new cards! What noise do you think a sprite, a sprite?